It's tough to say definitively what Alaskan's drug of choice is, but coffee, for sure, makes the top three. Every wide spot in the road, no matter how remote, has at least one coffee shop, and the coffee's usually pretty good. Today we're visiting one of those coffee shops, Homer's Anno Kisseton, for a conversation with its proprietor, Justice Skye, about taking coffee from its unpromising beginning as a slightly sour raw bean to a perfect cup. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. in the Islamic world since at least the year 1000, which is the first certain historical mention of it, although it's likely to have been around much longer than that. The most common origin legend involves a Yemeni goat herd who went to his imam with a curious observation. Ordinarily, his goats were quite docile and slept well, but when he grazed them in certain areas, they suddenly became lively and active and kept him up all night with their bleating. The imam, being a man with a scientific bent, followed the goat herd around for a few days and discovered the goats eating berries off a certain bush, one that initially appeared to be wild. But the imam noticed that the bushes were growing more or less in rows, suggesting that whatever they were, someone had planted them here, perhaps a very long time ago. So armed with a cutting of the plant and a bag of its red fruits, he went into the library to see what he could find out. He discovered that a colony of Ethiopians from the region of Kaffa had settled in Yemen and brought with them a plant which was immediately celebrated by the most famous Yemeni in history, the Queen of Sheba, who planted it and included it in the gifts she brought to King Solomon. When the dynasty she was part of dwindled away in the centuries before Islam appeared, knowledge of the plant did too. Satisfied with his historical inquiry, the imam then turned to the fruit itself. He found the berries not especially interesting on their own, but sure that there must be something about this plant that had caused it to be planted by his predecessors, he hit upon the idea of toasting the kernels of the berries in a similar way to grain, and when he crushed them and covered them in boiling water, he suddenly understood. It was delicious. He felt as sharp and focused as he had when he was young, and was the only man that evening who was actually alert during midnight prayers. He shared his discovery with the rest of his colleagues the next day, and the same thing happened to them. It coffee made its full appearance on the world stage. Until the 1600s, coffee was mainly confined to Islamic countries, where an extensive coffeehouse culture arose. It was produced in relatively limited areas, though, and was only an exotic rumor throughout Europe. The homegrown European drug was always alcohol anyway, easy to make with local ingredients. In the 1600s, coffee began to make real inroads in Europe, first as a fad among wealthy French aristocrats, and then in the form of coffee shops among the prosperous middle classes throughout Western Europe. Coffee's popularity in continental Europe exploded in the 1700s as the growth of colonial empires brought coffee cultivation first to Indonesia and then to America. During the same period, England, which had been as enthusiastic for coffee as everyone else, largely abandoned it in favor of tea, far more common in the regions conquered by the British Empire. Even as recently as the 1990s, it was difficult to find a cup of non-instant coffee in the United Kingdom. As the English ditched the foreign coffee in favor of the sort of homegrown tea, the U.S. after the revolution mostly set British tea aside to focus on much more easily accessible coffee. Our approach to coffee has always been as a cheap drug first and as a flavor experience second. Coffee's about the caffeine, the high, waking you up in the morning and keeping you alert throughout the day. For people who don't like the heavy, bitter flavor that is common in this kind of coffee, they can get their fix by juicing it with milk and lots of sugar. As I'm writing this, I'm taking big swigs from the second of many cups I'll have today. It's a pretty decent coffee, nothing special, but any day without it, something seems a bit off. Two days without it, then the problems start. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I'm looking here, and this thing, <laughs> it looks like a pot-bellied wood stove. Kind yeah, of. basically. This is a drum roaster? This is a drum roaster. This is the Alio Bullet R1. It's pretty much as small as you can go and still get professional quality roasted coffee. Is all coffee drum roasted or is... Drum roasting is the most common. Probably anything you're gonna get at the supermarket is drum roasted. There's also air roasting, which is um, sometimes called fluid bed roasting, where the beans are suspended in constantly flowing hot air. Um, and that's gaining a lot of popularity because you're able to get more even heat applied to the entire bean. Whereas okay. with the drum roaster, you have something in contact with it at all times. Where's the heating element in this thing? Is that like on the back? The heating element is in the bottom. It's actually, um, this roaster is unique because it's an induction heating element rather than a gas heating element. So um, the induction element actually heats the drum itself, uh, which is an unusual design. In this particular roaster, that leads to a lot of conductive heat transfer. Whereas some roaster, like an air roaster, obviously is gonna be all convective heat transfer. Right now, let's see, what is it? Is that 250 is the temp right now? 250 degrees Celsius, yeah, quite hot. So the first step um, in the roasting process is basically selecting your, what you call your charge temperature, which is the temperature of the air and the drum inside the roaster when you first put the beans in. And that's important because it kind of sets the tempo of the entire roast because uh, a large amount of heat transfer happens as soon as the cold beans drop in. Okay. And they start sucking all that heat out of the drum. So that kind of defines how long your roast is going to be and how much heat you're applying up front. It's, it kind of decides if you're going for a light roast or a dark roast, okay. what kind of flavor profile you're going to end up getting. What are we doing here right now? I'm doing an espresso roast but it's a lighter espresso roast. And that's because I prefer to use a lighter roast on espresso than most people. But in order to get the bean cooked well enough to taste good in espresso, you have to really give it a lot of heat up front for a light roast so that you're making sure that the heat is penetrating all the way to the center of the bean a lot earlier in the roast to make sure that it's fully cooked all the way through and fully developed. So in roasting at then, it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily like the final temperature that's the most important thing. It's how long it's spending at lower temperatures. That's right. It's more like its journey to the final temperature. Uh, I would say that you could have two roasts that both reached a final temperature of, for example, 210 degrees Celsius, and they're going to taste completely different based on how they got there. So huh. you could get one there really slowly, and it's going to be cooked a lot more through than if you get one there really quickly. Where the interior might still be like a little lighter. Right. Oh, yeah. And you could also, if you start out slow, and then speed up really quick at the end, you're not gonna get that, that heat penetrating evenly all the way through towards the end. You're gonna end up with an unbalanced roast. I never, I just always assumed that the beans were just sort of roasted all the way through, but, but what you're saying is that it's actually like, there's a, there's a gradient of doneness, basically? Yeah, the gradient of doneness, we call that um, development. Okay. So if a coffee is fully developed, it means that the inner bean has basically reached a brown color that is similar to the outer bean. We refer to the outer bean and the inner bean a lot. The outer bean is what's taking in the temperature right up front. But as um, the water content of the coffee bean is evaporating, it's kind of creating an evaporative front as it exits the bean that keeps the heat from penetrating the middle as much. So you really don't get that inner bean cooked until closer to the end of the roast usually. If that inner bean hasn't been cooked, we call that an underdeveloped coffee. And that's the big danger that we run into a lot with light roast coffee. And why, what turns a lot of people off to light roast coffee is they end up with coffee where it hasn't developed all the way through the center of the, of the inner bean. And so if that happens, you're going to taste grassy flavors, vegetal flavors, a lot of acidity. One of the few things that I really know about like coffee quality in a commercial sense is that uh, a, lot of, a lot of times they make a big deal out of something called Quakers. Right. Is that, is that what that is? Is like an underdeveloped bean? Kind of, yes and no. Um, okay. A Quaker is the entire bean is underdeveloped because what it is, is it's a bean that was picked when the fruit was underripe. So it hasn't absorbed all those sugars. So it's never going to. It's the, No matter what you do to that bean, it's not going to taste good. We've got um, two different types of temperature probes happening right now. One oh, okay. of them is, is a traditional thermocouple, which is what most roasters use. And um, that's just, you know, your traditional thermometer. And that's measuring the air temperature in the roaster. Okay. And this roaster is unique in that it has uh, an infrared laser temperature reading as well. And that's reading the temperature right on the surface of the drum. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the 165 is the air temp and the 250 is the drum. Right. Okay. Uh, and then once the beans are um, charged into the roaster, 
the bean surface will be constantly in contact with that thermal couple. Okay. So it'll be reading the temperature of the beans rather than the air temperature. Okay. And I have all of that information being oh, fed whoa. to my computer right here. Oh, wow. And I it's didn't graphing even notice it. this. Yep. So what are we looking at on this graph? There's what, four, well, three different lines. One of them's up and down like a seismometer. There's two that basically have the same profile, sort of a gentle rise and then a plateau, and then another one that's up and down. So yeah. what am I looking at here? So the two that um, rise and then sort of start to flatten off are the two um, <coughs> thermometers. The one that goes straight up to the top and then flattens out is from the infrared thermometer. Okay. And that's telling us that the surface of the drum has been heated to the appropriate temperature. But you can see that the um, traditional thermocouple probe is still rising, and that's because it's a little bit slower to react. Okay. And it's also kind of showing us that um, although the temperature of um, the surface of the drum has reached the appropriate temperature, it hasn't penetrated all the way through the drum. So okay. right now we're building up um, a higher thermal capacity so that we can transfer that all over to the beam. Really then, smell it anymore. So what's the, what's the jagged line then? Oh, the jagged line, that is kind of the foundation of the style of roasting that I do. That's the um, derivative of the change in temperature over time, otherwise known as the rate of rise wow. of temperature. So that's how many degrees the temperature is rising per minute. Okay. That's kind of what I'm looking at most of the time during a roast, and I'm kind of trying to control the shape of that rate of rise. We call that the roast curve. And so once we develop a roast curve that we think tastes really good, our goal is to repeat that curve. I had no idea that it was so technical. Yeah. Well, there's, um, there's kind of two schools of thought with this. There's um, more of um, sensor sensory-led roasting, and then there's more of data-driven roasting. So sensory-driven roasters oftentimes don't have the computer data. They go by smell right. and color as okay. they watch the beans tumble in the drum, and they make adjustments to heat and airflow and drum speed based on what's happening uh, from a sensory perspective. Okay. The other approach is data-driven roasting, which is what I do where we are relying on the data that's being fed into a computer and making decisions based on what's happening there. I like it because it's pretty consistent. Um, usually the senses of a computer are a little bit stronger than that of a human, a little bit more consistent. Don't change when you um, get sick. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna make all the people that get mad at me for telling them that they need to have, you know, a thermometer to, you know, when they're cooking and you and weigh things out when they're baking. Right. Like, they're gonna, they're gonna rise up in revolt right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, like, for example, we make our our own ice cream for espresso affogados, and we do the recipe based on weight. So we use grams rather than cups and yeah. ounces because. Preach, brother. That kind of stuff's a lot more consistent. <laughs> it's also easier to scale up and down. Absolutely. How old is this, this kind of science of coffee that's, that's this, as opposed to, like you were talking about, somebody going sniffing the air and going, oh, it's, it's done? It's, it's pretty new. Um, I would say, I, I know that standardized roasting uh, graph plotting software has been around less than 20 years, I think about 15 years or so. Wow. Um, maybe even less than that. And once that came out, it made a really big difference because a lot of people were basing their roasting techniques based on kind of like their intuitive understanding of how they made the coffee taste good and trying to repeat that. Yeah. But once you have, you know, empirical uh, data that is easily repeatable, it yeah. says a lot about what you're roasting. There were people who got, um, who still collected this data before they had these computer programs, but they would be taking constant temperature readings and, um, writing them down in a notebook, uh -huh. and then they would go and they'd plot a graph themselves afterwards and see how it came out. I gotcha. A lot more time consuming. This is a lot easier. Hard I'm glad that I started once the data already, <laughs> once the, the software already existed. So let's talk about the beans, because you said they haven't gone in, so where are they then? So um, the oh, beans there they are. are right here. Gigantic bag. A big uh, burlap sack. Obviously, the, the first step in roasting or in producing good coffee is uh, sourcing good coffee and making sure that it gets from the farm to the roaster safely. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, all of the coffees I buy are shipped in this Grain Pro liner. Okay. So traditionally, coffee just came in burlap sacks, and that's part of why traditionally it's been roasted as dark as it is because the coffee beans soak up the flavor of the burlap sack. So if you roast a poorly transported coffee, really lightly, you can taste burlap on it. Interesting. Yeah. 
So uh, a lot of work's been put into keeping the bean exactly how it is when it leaves the farm until it enters the roaster. So that's why it stays in this bag right up until I put it in the roaster. And then are these, these are the beans I'm assuming. Yep. I've weighed <laughs> out my first batch to go in the roaster. That's kind of, you know, I've never actually seen unroasted coffee beans. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. They, uh, they're very pale. They, I mean, they look like little rocks. They look yeah. like pebbles. You don't want to bite one. I'll tell you that much. They're uh, hard. <laughs> they're very hard. They're very dense. They, over the course of the roasting process, they about double in size. Yeah, that's what I was, they're small. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and they lose about, um, early, when I roast them, they lose about 14% of their mass. Is that like steam puffing them outwards, like popcorn, basically? Basically, yeah. Okay. It even, uh, even kind of pops and cracks like popcorn during the roasting process. Can I, can I just taste it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just curious what it, huh. Okay, there we go, then we're getting some flavor. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a raw, like graininess. Yeah. A little vegetal. Very vegetal. Ooh, yeah, it's really not very good. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't say that I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, most of the, the flavor um, is created during the roasting process when uh, the sugars start to break down. People who cook steaks might be familiar with the Maillard reaction, which mm -hmm. is the browning of the steak. And so that's a really important reaction in coffee roasting. When the, uh, the coffee beans dry out, they get yellow and then they start to brown. Mm -hmm. And that is when um, the sugars that later develop into aromatic compounds and flavors start to do their thing, okay. their, their chemical thing. Caramelization also plays an important role in that. The first person who ever ate that and was like, man, I can really do something great with this. That's kind of a leap. Yeah, it seems like a bit of a leap. I think, <laughs> <laughs> so my theory is, so the, the coffee beans are actually the pit of a, of a cherry on the coffee shrub. Okay. And so I think people were probably eating that cherry because mm. it's pretty sweet and, and does taste good and has some caffeine in it. Okay. So they probably were like, oh, I eat these cherries and I, get, I, get, I feel good. I yeah. feel energetic. So maybe we can go even further. Or maybe they threw the beans in the fire one night and, <laughs> you know, afterwards took a sample. Because, right. you know, once they're <laughs> roasted, even a raw, you know, just a regular roasted bean is pretty tasty. But yeah. it's nothing like that. I mean, no. that's... I can't think of too many foods that have that much of a dramatic transformation between the no. the raw state and the, the actual processing. Yeah. That's wild. So where are these beans from? These are from the Yirgacheff region of Ethiopia. Okay. Which is uh, pretty much where coffee came from. Okay. It's like the original coffee was native to Ethiopian area and uh, actually made its way into Yemen, which is where the Dutch found it. I used so, to live there. Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> I went to I went to eighth grade in Yemen. Really? Mm -hmm. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, that's where mocha. The, yeah. the name mocha comes that's from. That's where right? the name mocha. So the port of mocha is where all the coffee mm -hmm. to the whole world came through. Yeah. For a long time. For a very long time. So my roaster's talking. Oh, I was just like, wait, who is somebody here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, should I interview the roaster? <laughs> it has a. It's a. It's got a nice accent. So, oh, good. British accent. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Um, That's yep, how you so, know it's quality. Yep. That's another advantage of this roaster is it has an automated PID preheating system. So uh -huh. I don't have to like watch it and decide when it'll tell well, me. Well, yeah, the computer is telling you the yep. roaster is ready to charge. Yep. So charge means add the beans? Yep. All right. Well, I better get out of the way while you do that. Okay. All right. Oh, look at that. There they go. There they go. Oh, your graph changed. Yep, my graph started over, and it's logging just from the very beginning of this roast. Are, are both of those, that's the temperature, and that's dropping rapidly? So the one that's rising right from the beginning is the infrared probe. Okay. Uh, it has a more accurate reading on the temperature, so it's seeing these really cold beans now. Okay. And it's seeing them rapidly take on heat from the drum of the roaster. Okay. This other one that's dropping is the traditional probe. So it's been um, showing the temperature of the air in the roaster this whole time. So the air is being cooled by these cold beans that were just introduced into the system. Okay. So that one is dropping, and then eventually, as it catches up with the infrared roaster, they'll start to enter the same trajectory. And then we're starting to get our rate of rise reading right as the traditional probe starts to round and go upwards. Okay. So while you're watching this, what specifically are you looking for? So what I'm trying to do is I roast in the school of thought that was developed by a guy named Scott Rayo. He published the Coffee Roasters Companion. And his theory is that the rate of rise 
of uh, a coffee roast should always be declining. And so you should never be applying more heat throughout the roast, always slowly less and less heat throughout the okay. roast. And it's kind of like the idea that if you cook something too fast, you'll char the outside and you won't cook it evenly to the inside. Right. My ideal graph basically would look like a rate of rise that jumps up really quick and then slowly goes down until the temperature, until the rate of rise is almost zero. Okay. And then I would drop the beans. If the rate of rise um, jumps up suddenly throughout the roast too extremely, that's what creates um, what I would call roasty flavors in the coffee, like um, carbon and ash, things that you associate with like French roast. And if the rate of rise drops too, too quickly, then you'll lose the, um, the energy that's needed for the chemical reactions that develop sweetness okay. and interesting flavors. Okay. So you really want it to just be gradual throughout. Uh, there are a lot of roasting school of thoughts that don't agree with this method. Many, many different ways to, to get to a roasted bean. Did you develop this particular, this specific roast specifically around this bean? Yeah, so every bean roasts a little bit different. Um, like on a, on a larger bean, it's going to take more heat to penetrate the middle. On a um, denser bean, it's going to require more heat. On a bean that is small and not dense, it's going to require a lot less heat, otherwise you risk burning the outside. Uh, and then every bean reacts differently at different times throughout the roast, and you kind of just have to roast it a few times, watch the data, and see where you can make adjustments the next time and slowly work out the curve and smooth it. Your goal is basically to smooth out the curve more and more every time you roast. And so what are the characteristics that you would describe of this particular bean? You said it was Ethiopian? Yeah, it's Ethiopian. It's, um, Ethiopian coffees are known for being really floral. Okay. So it has a lot of um, floral characteristics. In this particular case, I'm using it for espresso, so I'm taking it a little bit darker in hopes that I can get some chocolate out of it as well. So you roast different if you were if you were going to make a drip coffee or a French press or right something in, like that. In general, um, if a roast is too light, it'll be it'll have more acid, and espresso really brings out the acidity in a coffee. So if you're if you have an acidic coffee that's going on espresso, you want to roast it darker to get rid of that acid, and it makes a more a palatable espresso. But sometimes for a drip coffee, that acidity will bring out more sweetness, and it'll give it like a sparkling characteristic, and okay. that can be really nice. So right now, we are entering the stage of the roast where the Maillard reaction is taking place. Oh yeah, they're definitely browning. Yeah, they're kind of a pale sandy color right now. Yeah where they, were, they had a really kind of puke green. Yeah, a, sen <laughs> a, a sensory-based roaster right now would be smelling this and it'd be like, you'd be getting like the, the smell of bread mm -hmm. and like gluten kind of coming off of it. What we notice in the data during this period is that most of the water in the bean has finished um, evaporating. We finished the drying phase. So the beans start to absorb heat a lot more quickly because they're not being, they don't have evaporative cooling happening which is why I'm starting to lower, that, lower the, uh, the heat that I'm applying to the beans right now. Right. All right, so we're approaching um, probably the most exciting moment in the roast, which, you know. All right. Roasting isn't super action-packed, but. <laughs> so right around 200 degrees Celsius, the, um, there's a big release of built-up gas and water from the center of the beans. We call that first crack. It happens twice throughout the roast. First crack is when basically signifies the point where you have drinkable coffee. Okay. It might not be fully developed to the point where you have all the flavors you want, but you could grind that up, uh, pour hot water over it, and you'd have a beverage. Yeah, you can actually, um, you can roast coffee in a, a popcorn air popper, and you'll hear the crack. All right, we're getting ready to drop the beans from the roaster into the cooling tray. So uh, in the computer, I marked when first crack happens, then the computer starts giving me information, time since first crack, and the development percentage. So uh, a lot of people call the time after the first crack the development period. Okay. And that is usually how I define when I end a roast. Damn, it, it looks like coffee beans. Yeah. <laughs> sure does. It smells amazing. All right, so we got an example of a Quaker right here, oh. which we were talking about earlier. See how it's still pretty pale compared to a a properly so ripened coffee bean? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely several shades dark, oh. yeah, lighter. So do you, you pretty much have to go through every batch and pick those out? Yeah, so uh, a lot of my, most of my coffees come from a really good uh, coffee buying company 
called Coffee Shrub in, uh-huh. down in Oakland. And they will get samples from a farm and they will roast them and they will count how many Quakers they get per pound. And if they get too many, they'll send it back. And have it, they'll have the whole uh, crop remilled to make sure that they get rid of the underripe fruit. I think that their acceptable range is something like five Quakers per pound. So um, That seems pretty small. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and that's why I buy coffee from them, because they put in a lot of effort to make sure you're getting really consistent beans. So you were saying there's a, the, the first crack is, is not the only crack, but you've already taken them out. So is it, is it in this batch, is there only one crack? If you have oily coffee, that's coffee that's reached second crack. That, that makes sense now because I noticed that your beans are really dry. Yes. Like they're not shiny at all. It's a real, it's a matte sort of dull finish. Absolutely. And um, right when you approach second crack is when that oil really starts coming out. Okay, so it's a temperature thing. Yeah. Okay. And that's, um, and that's what you'll see with uh, dark roasts, basically. Right. Dark roast people oftentimes are looking for second crack as an indication of when to drop their beans. I usually drop my beans for like a lighter filter roast. I'll wait until first crack ends, and usually right about there I'll drop the beans. Um, For espresso, I'll take it a little bit further, but I'm usually pretty far away from second crack still when I I just drop. These are smaller than, you know, the majority of the beans that I've, uh, that I'm familiar with. Is is that a, a, a factor just of how they're grown, or is it the, because there's two different species, right? There's, there's two primary spe- primary species. There's okay. more than that that um, people don't really drink. Robusta is... Um, oh, man, that's delicious. It tastes yep. like an espresso. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Good. That's what we're going for. Um, Sorry. So there's Robusta and... There's Robusta and Arabica. Ara- most specialty coffee and like high-quality coffee is Arabica. Robusta coffee tends to taste kind of like burnt popcorn or like rubber. It has more caffeine in it and it's more resistant to diseases. So you'll find that in Folgers or you know other supermarket brand cheap coffees. Um, although it does tend to have a lot more body than Arabica coffee. So it does hold up well to cream and sugar. Right. So it could be argued that uh, Robusta is better for lots of cream and sugar and Arabica is better to drink black. So this is Arabica, I assume. Yes, I, I only roast Arabica. I want to get ro- some Robusta for educational purposes so people can order a Robusta coffee and see how different it is uh-huh. because it, it really is extremely different. It's a lot more bitter. You get flavors like uh, like rubber and wood and, um, like I said, burnt popcorn. It's a lot harsher. I try to have a few different coffees roasted at any given time so that there's options if people want to make like if people order um, a pour over coffee i can offer them colombian or ethiopian or um, papua new guinean is there is there like kind of a generic characterization of some of the major coffee regions like ethiopia like you said ethiopian tends to be floral yeah i'd say uh so your kind of your main uh coffee regions are the americas africa and Asia, specifically like the Indonesian region. So African coffees tend to be um, more floral. They tend to have less body and be more delicate, uh, oftentimes more tea-like. American coffees are kind of, I think what most American people are used to drinking. They have a little bit more body, a little bit more earthy. Uh, Although you can find really interesting floral and fruity coffees in American coffees. And then Indonesian coffees tend to um, have more rustic character. Sumatran coffee is really famous for tasting really, really like uh, mossy and earthy and and just kind of like wild and like kind of tastes like a rainforest in a way. All right, we're ready for our next, our next round of beans to go in the roaster. All right. So will the coffee store almost, well, not quite indefinitely, but longer green than it will roasted? It'll store much longer green. A lot of people say that green coffee is good indefinitely or for years. I am typically buying higher end coffees with with really good flavors that do tend to fade after six to nine months. They start losing like the aromatics. Yeah, they start losing their aromatics and their liveliness. They get more boring. But you can still roast it and turn it into drinkable coffee for years. Obviously, you know, 
it's going to be drinkable for a while after it's roasted, but how long does it retain like it's it's real top quality? That's um, that's very dependent on the roast. So a darker roasted coffee will um, go stale faster because it's got all of its oils exposed. Um, it's lost a lot more of its structure. There's not as much keeping those volatile aromatics inside the bean. So most uh, darker coffees, I would say a week to 10 days. Anything past a week and there's a noticeable drop in quality. For um, lighter coffees that are just off of uh, first crack, they usually are better with some rest. So you might not even want to drink them until close to a week off of the roast. Really? Yeah, so there's a lot of um, CO2 that's created in the beans when you're, during the roasting process. And that CO2 takes a long time to escape from the beans once the roasting's done. And so if you have hot water that's trying to penetrate the coffee grounds and extract those flavors, it's being resisted by CO2 that's escaping the beans. So you want to give the, the, the beans time to off-gas and release that CO2 so that you can actually extract all the flavors. So on a really light roasted coffee, you could say that like the ideal time to drink it might be 10 days. Um, depends on, on the given bean. And I've had coffees that I've roasted that I've drank three, four weeks after roasting and they still had a lot of that flavor. And how do you store your beans I once, store they're, them, once they're done? I store them in um, food grade plastic totes and uh, with an airtight lid, Okay, basically. Just yeah. at room temperature? Yep. Uh, cool, cool, dark places are the best. Are better. But as long as they're not in anything, any extreme temperatures, Okay. they should be all right. A common misconception is that um, you lose a lot of quality if you freeze your coffee beans. And that's not actually true. It actually, if you don't plan on drinking your coffee quickly, it is better to freeze it. That's what I've always done with if I have too much yeah. to fill in my jar. What can cause problems is if you're taking the same container in and out of the freezer and pulling out what you need. So that, that change in temperature can cause them to degrade in quality. So huh. if you're going to do that over long term, it's better to pre-portion it into smaller bags oh, and then okay. freeze them all and take each bag as you need it. Okay. In theory, there's kind of an optimal roast profile for a given bean. A lot of people would disagree with that because there's a lot of, um, I mean, obviously that's pretty um, subjective. Like, do you want to, like, if you like those darker, more bitter, more caramely flavors, you might want to roast darker. But um, for a given palate, I think any bean can be optimized. For example, I'm looking to get as much of the origin characteristics of a coffee as I can in the cup. If a coffee's floral, I want to highlight those florals. If there's fruits in it, I want to highlight that fruit. And a lot of flavors that you get when you roast darker, like chocolate and caramel, are uh, part, they're flavors that are derived from the roasting process rather than from the origin of where the bean came from and what was already inherent in the bean. So from that school of thought, I think that there is an ideal point you can reach with any given bean where you fully developed the bean and gotten rid of any flavors that come from underdevelopment that are negative and you haven't reached a point where you're starting to get that bitterness that comes from a, a longer development time. So if, if, what, what you're saying sounds an awful lot to me like when, uh, when you talk to, to wine people, they talk about terroir, which is, you know, the grape has a certain expression that comes from growing in a certain area and being a certain kind of grape that, you know, has, it, it, it is one way and you don't want to try to be too heavy handed in the process to make it something that it's not. Even though you can, you know, you can, you can manipulate things and, you know, extract more alcohol or less alcohol or more of this kind of flavor or less of this kind of flavor. And, and it sounds a lot to me like that's what you're talking about with the bean, like, and that's why you don't tend to roast so heavy because you're not looking for the roasty flavors necessarily, you're looking for the beany flavors. Absolutely, yeah, that's pretty spot on. Um, I put a, a lot of effort and extra money into sourcing beans that have really excellent cup quality and really excellent origin characteristics that I want to highlight. So to me, taking the coffee anywhere beyond that is, you know, it's, it's kind of disrespectful to the, the whole process up to that point. I would go darker on a bean that has faded a lot and lost a lot of its origin characteristics or a bean that has uh, defects that bring negative flavors into it to cover those up. 
But essentially, like, too, what you're saying, like, if you are going to roast it dark, there's no sense in spending the extra money on the really nice beans with the excellent characteristic because you could take, you know, beans that aren't as well-grown and well-taken care of and get basically the same result right. with cheaper stuff, right. you know? And that's, that's not to say that a, a well-managed dark roast won't still have some of those origin characteristics. Yeah. But the longer you take the roast, the more sweetness you lose, the more of those flavors you lose. Um, you lose the, the positive aspects of acidity yeah. in the coffee, and you get more and more bitterness. So when I, when I first uh, drop the coffee into the roaster, I apply very little heat and allow the beans to soak up the heat that's already been absorbed in the drum. Okay. And then once the drum has given off some of its heat, then I start to bring up the burner temperature. Because if you have too high of a burner temperature at the beginning, you're just adding on to the heat of that drum and you're more likely to scorch the beans. Okay. And if you scorch them, then you get burnt flavors. Right. I can also, this is a nice feature for my, my data plotting software, I can pick a roast that I already did and I can overlay the data behind the graph that's being plotted for the new roast. Cool. And I can follow it along. Make sure that it's uh, doing the same stuff. And if it's doing something different, then I can see what variable might have changed to cause that. So let's talk a little bit about actually making this stuff. Yeah. I use a French press. What's the characteristics of like really good French press coffee? French press is a really interesting one. It's almost the same as the international standard for grading and scoring coffees, which is called cupping. So when you cup coffee, you just put um, grounds in a cup and then you pour hot water over them. Okay. And after a few minutes, you stir the grounds and let them sink to the bottom. Okay. So it's basically cowboy coffee. Like Turkish or, coffee. Or almost the same as French press without the press. Right. So most people will tell you that um, French press should be ground extra coarse because it's fully in contact with the water. So you want to, you know, you don't want it to be too bitter. What I do when I make a French press is I grind a lot finer and then I use less coffee. If you're using less coffee for the same amount of water and grinding finer, you're going to kind of spread out the expression of those flavors. So you're not going to get as, as strong of a cup, but you're going to get more clear flavors. Okay, okay. It's kind of like having a little bit of water in your whiskey. But in order to get um, a full extraction from less coffee beans, you do need to grind finer. My kind of ideal uh, French press recipe would be by weight, uh, about one gram of coffee for every 17 grams of water. Ground um, pretty fine, uh, not espresso fine, but finer than your finer than drip coffee. And I would pour water over it. I would let it brew for about four minutes, and then I would stir the crust on top and let that all sink to the bottom. This is actually I'm glad that you mentioned that because when you when you pour it into to the French press, all the grounds come up, and there's right. a ton of CO2 and it bubbles and yeah, and and it makes a big like you say a crust. And so you should break that up because I always do. Oh, well, I did, I did skip a step. Oh, okay. Okay, so before you pull, pour all of the water in, you should pour about twice as much water by weight as you have coffee, and then you should stir that and mix it up. Okay. And that will, that's called the bloom, and that'll release a lot of that CO2. And then after about 30 to 45 seconds of that, then you pour the rest of the water in, Okay. And then you want to allow that crust to form on top. Oh, okay. And keep it there for about four minutes. And at the end of that four minutes, that's when you stir the crust. Because while the crust is in the top, it's interacting with the water more. And so you're getting um, brewing action happening. Okay. Once you stir it and it drops to the very bottom, it's not interacting with as much. Ugh. And you've kind of stopped the brewing process at that that's point. That's exactly the opposite of what I thought was going on. Because right. I always kind of assumed like, oh, I need to stir it so that it's getting suspended within the water, you know, and then it's going to extract more, but it's actually extracting more when it's sitting at the top, you're saying. Right. Okay. Yep. And then I would wait until, so at four minutes you, you stir it, and then I would wait until about 10 minutes brew time. Okay. And allow the, uh, the particles of the coffee to slowly sink and gather in that bed at the bottom. Okay. And then very slowly I would press down the plunger of the French press but not disturb the bed of coffee. Okay. Just to keep it down there and then carefully pour off the top. And that's my ideal French press recipe, which is shared by a lot of people um, 
in the, in the specialty coffee industry. Okay, next up, pour over coffee. Pour over coffee. Is there a trick to it other than pouring over? <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of tricks to it. I think that pour overs are super customizable. There's actually a World Brewers Championship that um, focuses on developing a, a really effective brew strategy uh -huh. better than everyone else. Um, and people come up with all kinds of creative things like brewing half of the water through the pour over and then pouring that back through again to make it even stronger, for example. Brew temperature is really important because if you're using cooler water, it flows more slowly and you have more contact time with the coffee grounds but if you use hotter water, you're extracting more aromatics. It's something that you can really customize and make your own. So um, on top of there being a lot of different techniques for pour overs, there's like a lot of different types of pour overs. So you have, um, you have round cones, you have like wedge-shaped pour overs. And that matters? And it does matter um, because it affects the way that the water flows. Another big thing is the size of the holes at the bottom of the pour over. So some pour overs are designed so that there is a maximum flow rate so that uh, you don't really have to worry about how fast you are pouring your water onto the coffee grounds because it'll flow out at a consistent rate. Okay. That's like a, a Melita pour over. And that's what I recommend for people who just want an easy pour over in the morning is something with small holes that have a consistent flow rate. I, if you really want to customize your pour over and tease out different flavors and really um, try to develop your own style. A V60 pour over is really good for that because it has a really large hole at the bottom. So when you pour and how fast you pour and how long you pour makes a lot bigger of a difference. It can be as simple or as difficult as you make it. Right. I think it might be the most customizable type of coffee, especially once you get into the different uh, types of filters even. I use paper filters in my V60s, but there's also metal filters, which yeah. allow more um, particulates from the coffee beans to enter into your cup of coffee, and that gives you a lot more mouthfeel. Okay. Paper filters filter most of that out, so you get a really clear, crisp cup. And then you could use something like a cloth filter that is kind of the best of both worlds. Um, a really interesting dripper that I, that I got recently that I've been playing with is called a Nell dripper. And I believe that's a Japanese invention. It allows you to make a pour over that is about the same strength as a cup of espresso without the pressure. But it requires eight to 10 minutes of very, very slow pouring. <laughs> very, so maybe very not, intentional slow pouring. Maybe not, the, maybe not the, the ideal choice for the morning rush. No, definitely not. <laughs> but that's why I was so inspired by the Japanese coffee culture. I went into a coffee shop in Japan where they did not allow you to take a to-go cup. You have to sit down, you have to be there for the experience. Yeah. And you order a, you know, a four ounce drip coffee from an L dripper and it's gonna and it's gonna take you ten minutes and it's gonna cost you ten dollars and they're gonna make sure you drink it out of a nice cup and that you enjoy it or else. Before we get to talk about it making espresso, I feel like I should give you a chance to voice your opinion on the percolator. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is not video because the look you just gave me, I think it's probably much more expressive than anything you can say <laughs> on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, the percolator is interesting. It's pretty controversial, huh? I thought everybody just hated it. Well, everyone does hate it because it's hateable, but I've had a few of the better cups of coffee I've had out of a percolator. Really? Which is concerning to me. <laughs> You're worried that your taste buds are going? I, I'm worried that I'm, <laughs> I'm making some kind of mistake. No, I mean, I think you could make good coffee in, in a lot of weird ways. And I think you can make good coffee on a percolator. But I think it's, it's like putting everything against you in an unnecessary way. Making coffee on hard mode? Yeah, on extra hard mode. I mean, they're convenient. They're pretty quick. I, I also have a soft spot for them because... My grandpa's been making me coffee on a percolator forever. The taste of your childhood is hard to, hard yeah, to eradicate. Right, and it's a, it's a it's a fun process, kind of. Yeah, I mean, especially it is on cool. like a cool old-fashioned percolator. It's got noises. Yeah, bubbles. Bubbles. It's crazy hot when it comes out. Yeah, but I've also got this contraption right here for bubbles. I'm actually I'm curious about what exactly this thing is like. Some kind of weird science experiment. Yes, it is. <laughs> There's, yeah. like a, there's like a gold, what I'm assuming is a heating element, 
And then there's like some chemistry looking flasks. Some kind of a stopper. It looks kind of like a bathtub stopper. <laughs> and there's a dial. It's very steampunk. Super steampunk. So what exactly is it? Well, something to remember about coffee is that the only thing more important than taste is aesthetic. <laughs> so this thing is just for show? This, however, provides good aesthetic and flavor. Oh, all right. So this is called a, a coffee siphon. Coffee um, siphon. This contraption on the bottom is just a burner, but okay. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a light bulb burner. So you get a, a really hot light bulb in here with mirrors, and it focuses the heat onto this glass bulb here. So what you do is you put water down here, and then you allow it to come to a boil. And then you've just taken off this thing that looks like a, basically a wine glass with no base. A very tall wine glass with yeah. no base. And what you, you've hey, got- Hey, I wasn't that wrong. That is basically a bathtub stopper. Yep. <laughs> yep, that's the filter. That's a cloth filter oh, there. Oh, okay, yep. all right. And that stays in place with a spring. Okay. And then what you do is you drop this guy in the top and the boiling water gets vacuum sucked up into the top portion there. Okay. And so you so end up with just a little bit of water in the bottom and a so lot you, up here. So you put the grounds on top of the filter? And then you put the grounds on top then you stir them in and then you allow them to steep up top for however long okay. tastes the best. And then you turn down the heat and then the water slowly filters back down into that bowl. Wow. And this is another brew method where you're able to get a really, really strong cup of coffee and have it taste good and well extracted. Uh -huh. The thing about coffee is that the, the more coffee you use, the harder it is to extract that flavor from it. The more work you have to do, basically. Okay. To get that, the, that solvent that is the water to absorb all of those solubles. So this one allows it to really sit in there as long as it needs to and to keep brewing and to maintain a, a consistent brew temperature. How long does it take to make a cup of coffee in this? Um, once the water's up to temp, it, you only have to have the coffee grounds in contact with it for about a minute and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because you're able to extract the coffee really easily, I could put in three 12 ounce cups of coffee worth of coffee grounds, uh -huh. and I could put it in eight ounces of water. So you could get, you know, what would that be? What what you would normally get from 36 ounces of coffee in a little six ounce cup. Wow. Caffeine and flavor wise. Yeah. I don't know who can process that much flavor <laughs> all at once like that, but we have the technology. Does that, uh, does that cover all the manual methods? Well, I guess there's the mocha pot, but that's kind of like espresso anyway. Yeah. So. There's um, like approximately infinity manual methods of coffee brewing. <laughs> So I've actually, I've worked in places where I've had to make espresso, and this is gonna sound terrible, but I never, like people would show me what to do, but I never had any idea what I was doing. So I kind of feel bad for anybody that actually had to drink an espresso made by <laughs> me. You know, I knew I was supposed to tamp down the thing and put it and, you know, put the put the deal in the thing and push the button and some stuff happened, but I have, I have no idea what's going on. And I never wanted to learn, like it became <laughs> this, it became this thing where I was just like, I'm, I just don't know anything about espresso. So. What exactly is going on when you're when you're making and when you're pulling an espresso? And that's unfortunately usually the case with people <laughs> preparing espresso. Um, what happens when you make espresso is you're pressing a little bit of water through comparably a lot of coffee in a very short amount of time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's about it. Uh, <laughs> So no, wait, yeah. so wait, you're saying I was doing it right? You were doing it exactly right. <laughs> um, um, so I take um, a very precise approach to espresso preparation. I have a scale here that we put our filter onto and it weighs the coffee you put into it to within 0.1 grams accuracy. So when we develop uh, an espresso ratio, the first- I didn't do that. No, <laughs> most people don't do that. I would say even among specialty coffee, uh, it's a, a majority of baristas don't do that. Yeah. So the first thing um, that we do when we develop an espresso recipe is we decide how much coffee is gonna go into it. Because I use lighter roast coffee and it's not as intense and bold of a flavor, I put more coffee in my espresso shots. So I use 20 grams. And so that's not 20.2 grams or 19.8 grams. It's exactly 20 grams every time. Okay. And we weigh it every single time. You know, that's basically just how much coffee do you want? How much caffeine do you want? And then the second step is the yield of espresso that you get from those coffee grounds. So after we weigh that coffee, tamp it down and put it in the espresso machine, we have another smaller, much more expensive scale 
that we set under the espresso shots, and that weighs to within 0.1 grams as well, exactly how much water comes out of the machine. So instead of using um, a volumetric approach that a lot of coffee shops do, we use, uh, we weigh by grams. It's like we were talking about before, um, rather than measuring with measuring cups when you're baking, weighing it out on a scale. That's exactly what we do with coffee, both our weight in and our weight out. The ratio of coffee to water is kind of, is, is where your balance between strength and um, clarity of flavors comes in. So if you pull a ristretto shot, you're using less water, you're getting a more intense shot, you're getting more sweetness, but not necessarily more flavors. Whereas if you pull uh, something more like a lungo, we're using more water, um, that's usually defined as more than a one to two ratio of coffee to water. You're gonna get a really spread out shot. You're gonna lose some of that sweetness, some of that intensity, and some of that texture that a lot of people want when they drink an espresso. Um, but it's going to really open things up. My recipes tend to be a balance between those two. I usually use a one to two ratio. So you still get that texture, you get that nice mouthfeel that you, and that strength you expect from espresso, but you're not getting that super concentrated intensity. You're able to really taste the flavors that are there. And then from there, you adjust your grind coarser or finer to get the ideal flavor and that's denoted by how many seconds the shot takes to pull. Do you change those variables depending on what the drink is? Like if somebody wants an espresso versus a cappuccino versus say an Americano or a latte, do you, do you change any of that or do you basically pull the same shot? And I basically pull the same shot. Um, some coffee shops, like especially in Australia, if you order a, a flat white there, they might give you a ristretto shot, whereas they normally give you a more traditional ratio. But a lot of that really depends on the barista's preference. So that's why you might like one barista's coffee more than another, is they might be putting more or less water into their shots. Gotcha. So every morning uh, I come into the coffee shop and I make that recipe and I decide what I think tastes best. And that's what I serve for the day. Okay. And the next day, Another barista might come in, work with that exact same coffee, and they really like it a little bit more ristretto. Yeah. So that's what they'll be serving that day. And then the next day, like me, I come in and I just make whatever and get fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would get fired. Uh, <laughs> um, so what's the difference between a crappy espresso machine and a good one? A good espresso machine can achieve nine bars of pressure and a consistent flow rate of water and has an appropriate dispersion screen that spreads the water out evenly over the coffee grounds and presses the water evenly through the coffee. Okay. So those are the most important things. It seems like a pretty simple thing to accomplish, but there's a lot of crappy espresso machines out there. Yeah. I mean, they're usually characterized by like inaccurate flow meters that, uh, or the inability to reach nine bars of pressure. The amount of effort that goes into a good espresso and the amount of money it costs to have a machine that's capable of having that consistency and that flow rate and that pressure, it, it really is worth going and paying a barista two or three dollars to just do all that work for you, in my opinion. Yeah. If I wasn't working in a coffee bar, I would not make espresso at home. It's absolutely worth it to me to, to not go through that process of tasting the bad coffee to try to get to the good coffee and dealing with that and like yeah. wasting probably more money worth of coffee each morning to get there than it would cost to just go buy an espresso. Okay, I think we've I think we've just about gotten everything except there's one more thing for basically my entire life I've had the classic coffee grinder with the blade. You know the one. It sits there on your counter and it goes bah! and it doesn't really do that great a job, I know. So sell me right now on spending the money for a burr grinder. What will it get me if I do that? It'll get you my respect. <laughs> you just lost it all when, <laughs> when you just found out that I use a blade grinder? <laughs> You're just okay. like, why am I even talking to this guy? The interview's over. <laughs> What's the difference? Why, why, why do blade grinders suck? So particle size is really important for coffee extraction. So a blade grinder is gonna give you boulders and it's gonna give you fines. You're gonna have a really broad range of um, particle sizes basically. And so within a given brew time, you're gonna get 
coffee grounds that are only partially extracted. You're going to get coffee grounds that are over extracted and have flavors you don't want coming out of them. And so you're basically getting an under extracted sour cup of coffee mixed with an over extracted bitter cup of coffee mixed with a good cup of coffee. If you have a consistent grind size throughout, you're just going to get one or the other. And so it's easier to dial it into exactly what you want and get a coffee that's going to taste good. And that's the thing that um, coffee professionals always recommend. Before you get a nice espresso machine, before you get a nice drip maker, always put your money into the grinder first. Because if you don't have a consistent grind size, you're not going to have good coffee. I don't really like coffee. <laughs> Why is that? Because it can be so good, but most of the time it's not, and that makes me sad. Ah. <laughs> High-level coffee snob. Oh, there was one thing I wanted to talk about. Oh yeah, I wanted to explain my name. So the reason I chose the name Anokisaten is because I was inspired by Japanese coffee culture. So they've been treating coffee as a craft for over a hundred years, um, when the Dutch brought it to them in like 1910 or something. Whereas America has really only been treating it with that intensity in the last few decades. So Anokisaten means literally that coffee shop over there, uh, which is kind of silly, but there's two kinds of coffee shops in Japan. There's a cafe and there's a kisaten. And a cafe is uh, Western style. So at a cafe, you go inside, you get a to-go cup, you get your latte, you leave. Whereas a kisaten is usually uh, much more luxurious and dedicated to the craft. So oftentimes, you're not allowed to take a to-go cup. You need to sit there, you need to spend the time and enjoy it. And usually there's really nice furniture and usually there's nice snacks, and all of the focus is on quality. So I spent a lot of time in Kisatens when I was studying in Japan, and I realized that American coffee culture is really lacking in the sense of slowing down and enjoying coffee, and it's a lot more about the grab and go and the, the drugging yourself up mentality. Right. So my mission with my business isn't just to embody uh, craft coffee in the Japanese sense, but kind of to create a journey to bring in coffee traditions from all different parts of the world. So I've incorporated elements of coffee making from being in Japan, from being in Korea, from sourcing coffee in Bali, and even from um, the long-lost coffee traditions of Portland, Oregon. Do they have long-lost coffee traditions? Well, I don't know if they're long-lost, but we're not using them up here. Is that, the, is that the third wave stuff that you hear so much about? Yes, I, I, I learned, originally I, I learned how to make coffee at K-Bay Cafe uh, here in Homer under Michael. I really expanded my coffee horizons when I started making coffee in Oregon, making third wave coffee, which is, again, focused on the craft of coffee, but it's so um, specific to the American style of coffee consumption. So it was really cool to see that there's other ways to focus on bringing out that quality. And no one's really doing coffee like that in Alaska. So I think it's, it's something that people would enjoy here. We're serious about our coffee. Yes, we are. <laughs> and I think we can be even more serious. Jack the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guest was Justice Sky of Ano Kisitin Coffee Roasters in Homer. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2, by Claude Debussy, performed by Kator Ebain. This is the fourth episode of the fall 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you. 